Hello and welcome to another episode of The Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Pilati, and I am really excited today to dive into growth tactics in a two-sided marketplace. So Declan Bond Schweitzer, who is a VP of Growth at Albert or the VP of Growth at Albert, is joining us today. Declan, thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks, man. Nice to be here. Absolutely. So Declan spent about two years at Bird doing some growth stuff, and we were talking through his experience there, which required some pretty unique approaches to growth that I found really interesting that I thought would make for a really great podcast where folks can listen, even if you're not in the industry. It's just really, really interesting to hear how it's approached in that sort of marketplace. So we're going to dive into what growth looked like there, some of the learnings, some of the lessons, and we will go ahead and jump in. So Declan, if you can give the quick intro on yourself, we'll go ahead and start asking some questions. Yeah, as you said, uh, VP of growth at at Albert now, formerly at Bird. uh, And then before that, I was at Headspace on the growth team before that, in a, in a former life, uh, I was a professor of philosophy and jumped ship from academia to come into the tech world. Well, welcome. We are excited to have you here. It sounds like you've landed yourself in a pretty good spot. So why don't we start with the framing of the bird business model, maybe for folks that aren't all that familiar, and kind of how the growth team thought about its approach and the growth team's focus within the picture of that business. Yeah, totally. So Bird is a kind of two-sided marketplace. Almost, I think of it as like a two-sided plus marketplace. It's not really a three-sided marketplace per se, but you have this kind of physical object that's also kind of in the mix, the, the actual vehicle itself. And then you have the riders, demand side, and then the chargers, the supply side, the people who keep the birds maintained and charged and, and deployed on the streets. The business of Bird is really connecting riders and vehicles and doing that by having chargers pick them up and and charge them and put them back out on the street in in strategic locations. I don't think we've said the word scooter yet, but they are scooters. (laughs) They are scooters. Yeah. So apologies. I've referred to them as vehicles. That was we always referred to them as vehicles in the office. So, yeah, but they are scooters effectively. (laughs) Yeah, makes sense. So within that context, The growth team, were you specifically focused on, like, was the team split into this part works on getting more riders and this part of the growth team works on getting more chargers? Like, how how did that break down? When I started, I joined about nine months into the the business launching. And at that point, yeah, we, we really thought of things in that kind of supply and demand sense. We had a team focused on chargers, a team focused on riders. Over time, we started to coordinate efforts a little bit more. So my original responsibilities were specific to the rider side and incentivizing riders. And then over time, we started going after you know charger incentives and, and thinking about ways we could get chargers to do more tasks, to charge more birds. In a sense, the reason for that is because obviously as a two-sided marketplace, you want to scale up your supply and demand at the same time, but also the actual tools and the tech that you use, the levers that you pull for for growth on both the demand and the supply side are often the same. In our case at Bird, they're definitely the same paid acquisition performance marketing tools, CRM, push notifications, email, own channel communications were often the same. So it made sense to consolidate both sides of the marketplace under one kind of growth team. So one of those core levers that we had talked about, which your team thought about all the time was around pricing, right? So pricing for 
the riders, maybe we're looking at discounts and given markets or flash sales or whatever it might be. And then there's some pricing stuff that I'm sure also comes into play with chargers. So why don't we start with the rider side and how your team thought about and approached pricing and unit economics? Yeah, totally. So I think there's two kind of embedded questions here. So one is about base pricing and how to think about the actual kind of like everyday pricing. And then there's another one that's specific to like incentives and and getting people to ride more. So when I joined, we were really focused on top line growth, both rides, revenue, and pretty quickly we shifted our focus to kind of unit economics and profitability, which led to a ton of price testing. And one area in particular that, that I focused a lot on was kind of contra revenue, things that take away from your gross revenue. In e-commerce, for example, things like sales returns and stuff like that. In our case, you know, one of the interesting things that we noticed when we were taking the fine-tooth comb and, and scrutinizing our unit economics was around contra revenue from credit card fees. And obviously in a super low margin, low transaction cost business, credit card fees can be a big part of, of the overall margin. One of the things we did besides just testing different kind of price points was we tested two different kind of models of payment. One being pay as you go. Each ride has a kind of start fee, $1 to start, and then a per minute cost after that. And you would pay kind of all at once at the end of the ride to a model where we actually just charged you up front a fixed cost like 5 or 10 or $15. You would kind of use your balance to take rides. We called it a bird wallet. And the question there was, are we going to lose out on people converting into riders because they don't want to pay $10 for their first ride? versus do we make that up in the better unit economics that don't have 30 cent transaction fees for every single ride, but rather just one transaction fee that's it's spread across more rides. And I think the exciting and interesting part of it was that not only did we find that we could make up that cost in the credit card fees and that the conversion difference was relatively low, but also people who filled up a bird wallet were way, way more likely to come back and actually take a second ride. This is obviously, I think, pretty intuitive. If you've loaded up your your wallet with some credit and you take a $5 ride, you've got $5 left over. You want to take advantage of, of that value you've committed. So that was like a super kind of happy outcome for that experiment. And we ended up scaling the bird wallet. Most of the players in the space, Lime and other competitors also ended up going with the wallet. And then I guess another kind of thing to touch on there was that having a kind of reason to, to communicate with someone, which was the wallet itself and the balance. So we did a lot of work just making sure that people were aware that they still had uh, a balance. If they hadn't ridden in a, in a while, we would make sure that their balance was clearly highlighted when they opened the app or we would send them a message, push or an email at a timely moment uh, to try and keep that top of mind for them so that we would keep bird top of mind in general. So that was, yeah, another kind of way in which that helped us a lot. I think on the other side now, in terms of incentives and like actually discounting our product, like I said, when we shifted our focus to unit economics, we really kind of severely curtailed that and tried to be really, really tactical. The idea was that we didn't want to incentivize rides when we would get that ride anyways. So didn't want to have almost any cannibalization, which meant that we had to be pretty tactically thoughtful about when we were willing to to give someone a discount. 
And one of the things that I think was a really kind of successful, first of all, but interesting test and thing that we implemented in the end was the idea of getting someone to, to take a ride when they had shown a demand signal, what we call demand signals. You can imagine if a rider were to open their app, we could see that uh, on our end with an event and we could track if that rider then went on to take a ride. And if they didn't, why was it that they didn't? They clearly showed a kind of, they put their hand up and said, hey, I want to I want to ride a bird. That's why I opened the app, obviously. If that didn't happen within 10, 15, 20 minutes, we would trigger an incentive, maybe a $1 off your next ride or something like that to try and kind of capture that demand signal. Later, when I was talking about that push notification that we would send, I realized that it kind of uh, mimics the behavior of like an abandoned cart message where someone's clearly said, hey, I'm interested in making this purchase. They don't follow through. And so you, you follow up with them because you've got a very clear demand signal to work with. Yeah, I love all of that. There's so much to work with there and unpack. I think going back to your first core point around the credit card transaction fees and the bird wallet and getting people to pay up front, I've never operated in that sort of like high volume, low cost transaction world before. And now it makes so much more sense to me as to why all these video games, mobile games, all that have these upfront buy your credits type system. I'm sure that not only is it because they're avoiding those transaction fees, like you were saying, but also very much what you're talking about is that you get all this added benefit of they're locked in, there's like commitment bias, they've already put the money towards it, you get to continue marketing to them. It seems like there's generally only upside and from your what you had tested like only a low downside to conversion rate, if any, in the first place. Yeah, totally. I think on the conversion rate stuff, again, like it's very context specific, but you can imagine that like when you're thinking through from the perspective of the user, walking up to a bird for your first time, it's a likely story that you're you know, either alone, but there aren't many other vehicles or other competitors around, or you're with some friends and you all have them. There's a lot of like kind of momentum in that buying decision already. So in that context, I think, yeah, we really didn't see like a massive drop off in conversion because people wanted to ride a bird. That was like what they opened the app for, for the first time. And the, the kind of barrier to entry we did a lot of testing on like what the right price point is. Is it a $5 or a $10 or a $15 kind of minimum top up for your bird wallet? But you have to think through from the user perspective, like, is that decision one that you're pretty close to making regardless of what the payment scheme is? And like you said, if it's if it's all upside because there's not a huge drop off from from the conversion perspective, then that, yeah, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And one of the other things that I would love to hear about is you're running these incentives to make sure that there's no cannibalization, right? You're not doing them upfront, but you're doing it when you already have some sort of signal that there's a potential for somebody taking a ride. When you were doing these price relief discount type experiments, were you generally doing it across all markets 
just scaled to the cost of that market? Or was there always like one base market that you would test in like the San Francisco market, you run all your tests there, and then you roll them out to other markets where like, how, how did you think about isolating those tests and rolling them out? Were they across everything? Or were they in specific places first? Yeah, this is a good question. Unfortunately, I would have loved to have lived in a world where we had a kind of representative market that kind of captured what we would see elsewhere. But the reality is that, and and this is like an interesting part of the bird business as a whole, because it applied to every part of the business, not just rider incentives or, or charger incentives and things like that. But the kind of topography and geography of a market would change very drastically the way that riders behaved and the way that we kind of adapted to those specific market needs. I'll give you an example. In Atlanta, which is a relatively large market, they have this thing called the Beltway, which I guess is a kind of like long walking biking path that goes around a large park. I haven't actually been there, so I don't know. But that specific geographic feature of Atlanta changed the whole composition of the rider behavior there. And with caps on the number of vehicles that we could have, a lot of focus was placed on making sure that we were able to supply the the kind of people that were on the beltway. And so incentives that we ran in that market would be adopted very differently than those in Los Angeles, where a lot of our vehicles are concentrated in, in certain areas since it's such a sprawling city. Because of that, we didn't have like a kind of single market that was like our Petri dish. And also we were we're really methodical about statistical significance. We ended up testing a lot over broad ranges, so nationally or even internationally. We would break things down and look at them both in aggregate and then at the market level. So certain incentives that were profitable at the kind of nation level or the global level would be super problematic and not profitable at at the certain market level, and we would kind of adapt the next version of the test to try and focus in on on those markets and configure things uh, a little differently. That said, the pricing model of $1 to start or one kind of currency unit, euro, pound, et cetera, to start followed by a per minute cost meant that like we did have a little bit of a kind of uniformity to the way we thought about incentives. The $1 start fee or the fixed cost start fee. So for example, in Poland, it was like six or seven Polish lotties, which is close to a $1 fee. That was something that we experimented extensively with, like not having one, having one, discounting it, waiving it. Because I think structurally it made sense to consumers to think like, oh, you know, I don't have to pay anything to start up front where I normally would. And that's a kind of like pricing psychology lever that we used a lot. Yeah. So you had one base foundation for pricing and then there were just so many markets and so many, I mean, so many variables and so many different markets. It sounds like a fascinatingly fun and complicated <laughs> place to operate but that, that's awesome. So we've talked mainly through, the, we're just talking about one side of the marketplace here. Then there's this whole other side of getting people to show up and charge all of these birds that are all over the markets. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you incentivize the fleet of chargers to 
continue to show up and do so and how you match that with the demand that's in that market? Yeah, totally. So chargers, just to give the high level chargers, obviously they, what they do is they pick up birds when they're out of battery, they use a special app, they can identify and, and locate the birds. They go, they pick them up, they bring them back to, you know, usually a kind of garage or maybe a facility. They basically plug them into the wall for, you know, a couple hours and then they're ready to be deployed again. And so the kind of name of the game was really getting people who had large capacity, could charge a lot of birds at a time, and also wanted to be kind of regular chargers, you know, that were kind of making this part of their routine. And one of the things that a specific area that we found we needed to like solve for was these kind of spikes in demand. So you can think like a long weekend, for example, how do you get uh, a bunch of people who are charging maybe 20, 30 birds a day or a week to suddenly kind of scale up their charging capacity? And so obviously, you know, one lever is going to be pricing and incentivizing people with pricing. We would pay out usually at a per bird level. We would pay, you know, uh, X dollars to charge this bird and deploy it again in a, in a strategically designated spot. On a long weekend, when we expected a surge in demand on, a, let's say, a Monday, when we would normally not have that, we started by testing, hey, we would message our charger community and say, hey, we're going to pay you one extra dollar let's say, for each bird that you charge. And what we found was that people responded to the incentive, but not, not really in the way that we would expect. They basically would charge the same or maybe slightly more than they normally would. And they would basically just get one extra dollar for each bird, which was tough on our margins, obviously, because one, you know, one dollar is, is meaningful in, in that business. And so instead of just doing the one dollar incentive, we started making the incentives based on kind of hitting certain thresholds. So if you charge, you know, X number of birds, you'll get an X dollar bonus. And if you charge 2X birds, you'll get 2.5X bonus, et cetera, et cetera. I think that method turned out to be way more incentivizing for not only existing chargers who suddenly would charge way more birds than their normal capacity, but also was really good at getting people who hadn't charged in a while, maybe who had churned, uh, to come back out and charge birds for a specified period of time. And I think the reason for that is that when you say, again, from a pricing psychology perspective, when you say like, hey, we'll give you one extra dollar for every task that you do, it's just not a very exciting offer or number. One dollar just seems like kind of like not a big deal. But when you say like, hey, if you charge 100 birds this weekend, we'll guarantee a $500 payout or something like that. That's a big number. And that's, that's like really exciting for people. And, th and that's something that they kind of really rallied around. So that was, that was a, a super important and super interesting learning. The other thing that we really focused on was, like I said, the kind of habitual chargers, people who kind of became regular chargers. Again, going back to this incentive and getting people to go out for one weekend and, and do a big kind of haul of charging, we had this, this kind of concept internally of like making space in your garage. So kind of using this like one big incentive moment to kind of like immediately like change your kind of routine and, and make space for a certain new activity, namely charging uh, bird scooters. And so we tracked people who took advantage of these incentives to see like if they did it, if they took advantage of an incentive 
on weekend one, did their charging capacity in subsequent weeks increase and stay kind of steadily raised? And that was actually the case, which was super exciting. You know, we would be able to get people to change the way they kind of go about their their week to include charging birds uh, as part of that. So that was super exciting too. Love that. It's a whole whole other world of growth approaches for that side of the market. So one other thing that I, I want to circle back to f- around pricing is something that you mentioned we were, when we were talking before the podcast is how commoditization of pricing in a market like where Bird operates has a pretty decent impact on how you think about the growth incentives and levers, both for the chargers, because I presume that these are people that could also just pick up and start doing Uber, or maybe they're also doing Lyft. And so you're competing with their time and the money they can make on that platform there. Plus, as a rider, I look around and say, well, I could use something like Scoot if it's in that market or one of your competitors at a different scooter rental platform. So how do you think about that? And, and how did that impact how the growth team approached things? Yeah, so I think it's worth noting that on the charger side, charging bird scooters is a sufficiently different kind of activity that I don't think we were really ever competing that heavily with the ride sharing business. The key difference for for chargers from drivers being that you kind of pick up the birds and plug them into the wall and then you don't have to mind them for a while. It's a kind of set it and forget it and then, you know, go out and deploy them kind of mentality that I think draws people to that rather than being in your car for every minute that you're on the clock. So there's that. As far as charging for other companies, I think the incentives and the kind of like threshold guarantees, you know, if you charge this many birds this weekend or if you charge this many birds this week, that started to help decommoditize the work. It wasn't as effective to split your time between charging limes and charging birds if we were giving incentives for hitting certain thresholds. So I think that side was was probably less difficult to solve for. But the rider side is very difficult because obviously we we took a lot of pride in the the vehicles and the scooters that we designed in-house at Bird. And they, unbiased, of course, but they're definitely superior. But from a rider perspective, not only is that not always clear, but whether or not they're so superior as a scooter ride that you're willing to walk an extra 500 feet or what have you to go get a bird rather than go pick up a spin or a lime or any of these others, that's a much bigger ask. One of the things that we thought a lot about was the thing that decommoditizes a scooter when all else is the same is your proximity to it as a, as a potential user buyer. So obviously, again, going back to the demand signals, we knew when someone opened their app how close they would be to a given bird or to the nearest bird, let's say. We didn't know, obviously, you know, how close they were to, to any competitors, potentially. But we did know that, in general, the app open to conversion to ride funnel was weaker when you got further and further away from the nearest bird. And so, as a result, we tested a lot of different kind of proximity-based incentives. So, if you open your app and you're more than a mile away, for example from the nearest bird, it's probably a a harder conversion funnel than if you're 10 feet away. And so you need some kind of incentive via price to go and make the trek to go get that bird. 
And so we did find success with that. The other thing kind of going, not just capturing demand signals, but actually trying to predict demand and be more aggressive, let's say, in our kind of going after users was leveraging the kind of Bluetooth technology within bird scooters that would connect to the app and then, you know, and your phone, and then allow us to kind of push to you a a message about riding birds. And this was an interesting use of the actual hardware technology where people would, we were able to connect to Bluetooth on your phone. And as you passed a bird, we could send a push notification to you saying like, hey, you're within a hundred feet of, of a bird. Why not take a ride? This was a controversial experiment. It definitely was very taxing from the tech side. And it was hard to, to really nail down the kind of perfect timing for when a user was was near uh, a bird, but also in the kind of frame of mind to, to ride a bird. So a lot of people in, in growth talk about right message, right time, right user. And it was just a really good, valiant attempt, I think, at, at getting that right. But it's really hard. You know, you can imagine driving your car past a bird that's on the corner of a sidewalk and getting a push notification saying, hey, uh, you should ride a bird right now. And it's just, you know, it's completely the wrong context. So that was a, that was an interesting kind of foray into trying to be more on the kind of pushing to people rather than pulling people in uh, once they, they gave you the demand signal. And yeah, we didn't we didn't scale that pro- that program uh, a ton. Yeah, it, it's like the holy grail of it is: can you figure out the moments in which you can flag to somebody that a bird is available before they open that app? And yeah, it sounds it sounds very tricky. I can't quite imagine how how you would nail that down and know that they are actually in a state of mind or going towards a location that makes sense for them to grab a bird. It sounds like a, an ongoing challenge for that team. I mean, to be fair, there there are definitely moments that it's it's more straightforward, right? So if you have a big game at a stadium uh, nearby and you have placed a bunch of birds knowing that people are going to get out of the game at some time and want to ride birds back to their car or avoid the traffic of, of the parking lot or whatever. Those moments are relatively straightforward, but you don't really need the Bluetooth connectivity acrobatics to really just send a push notification when the game is over and say, hey, you, you should grab a bird or something like that. There are moments where we were able to leverage that push mentality rather than just pull. But that specific uh, use case with the with the Bluetooth connectivity was was a tough one to land. Also worth noting that like different geographies, again, like have a very different profile. So European cities behave very differently because people tended not to be in cars. So when when they were near birds, they tended to be on foot often. Just a, a varied, varied kind of results from from those experiments. This is awesome stuff. I really love learning about all of this. It's not something I've operated in. It's fascinating. There's so many variables to it. <laughs> like I work in B2B software and it's pretty straightforward what your variables are, but bird and that sort of marketplace is a whole other level. So thanks for talking us through it all. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Of course. And anything else before we wrap up, anything else that you feel like you wanted to touch on that we didn't get a chance to cover? Uh, no, I think that's it. Yeah, like you said, Bird and, you know, the scooter marketplace is very complex. We didn't even talk about the entire 
chain of logistics related to you know owning and operating a fleet of physical vehicles and how that plays into all this as well. We talked a bit about unit economics at the beginning of the the show, and I think in most in most places, at least that well, maybe that's not true, but I think it's it's definitely true that unit economics are relatively stable often in tech in in SaaS companies, and we had different unit economics market by market. And so what a, a profitable incentive or, you know, a good tactic for incentivizing chargers was uh, in one place would be completely different because just the, the logistics and the, the cost structure of a certain market might be very different. And so, yeah, it's just uh, immensely complex and, and nuanced. Yeah, that sounds like it could be a whole other podcast for sure. Definitely. Cool. Well, thank you again. Really appreciate you joining here. For all the folks listening, there are plenty more episodes with other amazing people. Hit that subscribe button. Go check them out. If you've got any feedback at all, my email is mattadrift.com. As always, I really appreciate you listening in. I know there are thousands or an unlimited amount of things you could do with your time uh, and spending it here listening to this is greatly appreciated. So thank you again. And Declan, thank you for joining. And I will catch you on the next episode if you're listening. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers.